0: Welcome to The Puck, Venture Capital and Beyond. A show that explores the evolving landscape in the venture capital world. We'll have candid conversations with today's VCs and entrepreneurs who are shaping those changes. I'm Jim Beer, the managing partner of Beer Negrin & Trough and the president of CMEG Advisors. This podcast brings change makers to the table to discover the inner workings behind their decision-making strategies and ultimately to how they got to where they are today
1: and I'll tell you the best investments we've ever made have been companies that started growing before the founder had any idea why. They just took off. And that means that you have a product that's in demand. And when that's happening, everything else you can solve.
0: I'm excited to have Ryan Falvey here today who is the co-founder and managing partner of Financial Venture Studio. And what's exciting about this episode is that while we've highlighted other industries, We have not highlighted fintech and looked at where the puck is going with respect to fintech. So, Ryan, welcome. And why don't you take a minute and tell us a little bit about your background and we'll go from there. Yeah, thanks for having me here, Jim. Pleasure to be on the show.
1: Yes, I actually got my start in what's now fintech probably about 15 years ago. I started out working in a background in startups and technology and started out working in emerging markets and spent the first five, six years of my career developing mobile banking and mobile payments platforms kind of all over the world. And I you know, took a job in the US in mid 2012, 2013, and was working for a bank that was trying to do a bunch of stuff with financial services. And I had assumed, just naively, that the United States was pretty advanced as far as you know, payments infrastructure and how consumer financial services was developing. And I was shocked just to see how, how far behind the eight ball the US is and really how much opportunity there was here to really rethink financial services by whole cloth. And so started out investing, I ran a investment fund. that was backed by Morgan Chase called the Financial Solutions Lab, which was in partnership with a nonprofit. And I did that from 2015 till 2018. And then I launched this business in early 2018 with my partner, Tyler Griffin, who was a founder of, of another you know, FinTech payments company that had been acquired. What we're really trying to do here is really create a home for the founders who are building the future of financial services in this country. I think there's really a once in a multi-generational opportunity to to rethink almost every element of the financial services industry. And so we want to help founders who are kind of forefront of that really accelerate their growth and take their business to the next level.
0: We have spent some time on The Puck talking about things like cryptocurrency, for instance, and I know that you've looked at that space as well. Do you see fintech and cryptocurrencies kind of coming together as a big new part of where you see The Puck going, or is crypto not part of the future?
1: I think it's part of the future. They tend to kind of orbit around themselves each other a little bit. I think historically, and so I say till today, you know, you see the biggest connection on the two where you often have strong technical teams will come around to work on something in the you know the crypto space, and then may often kind of pivot away to work at something more traditional fintech. I think with a lot of the innovations we're now seeing in DeFi and more of a third generation of crypto, you're seeing more obvious connectivity points with the traditional financial services ecosystem, and I think that that will lead to more crossover between them. You look at what Square has done, what PayPal has done, Robinhood incorporating crypto into their core offerings. It's a great way to drive engagement and activity. So far, we haven't seen a lot of utility outside of the, you know, mostly speculation or investment, but I think that that will evolve.
0: So in terms of the companies that you're seeing and the changes that technology is bringing to fintech, can you help us understand where you see fintech evolving in the next few years?
1: Yeah, I I don't want to speak with too much hyperbole, but I think we're really in the midst of what I would describe as a a once-in-a-multi-generational transformation of financial services. remember mostly the last, I don't know, 200 years. The way banking and insurance has worked is you were extremely well-connected. You went out and bought or rented the most expensive piece of land in your town or city. You dragged some granite there. And you put on a suit and tie, and as long as you followed the rules, you were able to get a license to be an oligopoly of a financial service in that area. And what's happened really over the last decade is you now have the ability, you know, that kind of nexus of competition has moved to the internet. So someone with a great design and a new sense of thinking about product, which has been happening, you know, since the advent of the mobile web, those people are coming up with completely new ideas for financial services, and they're no longer constrained by physical barriers. And increasingly, consumers are looking for digital options. And so what that's meant is you've seen a mass migration to the tune of tens of millions of consumers. First it was every year. Now it's probably a, a quarterly basis moving from physical financial services to digital financial services. It's leaving behind most of the banking infrastructure. Most of the, yeah, I think, insur- most insurance companies are going to be pretty heavily disrupted and creating new you know, multi-billion dollar platforms kind of left and right. And many of these businesses are competing on a completely different set of rules than the traditional incumbents have. And I think it's, it leads to a really exciting time for anyone who's using financial services, but certainly anyone who's investing in this industry or building new
0: businesses. So for someone like myself who has seen the evolution where we started with obviously going into banks and then we had cash machines and then we're seeing PayPal and we're seeing the Robinhood now and then you've got online banking and Venmo and these different abilities to make payments and otherwise. You mentioned things like insurance for instance and other disruptive technologies coming in. Can you Walk us through some of those, as you said, once in a century disruptive technologies that some of us may not have been using. Like, what about technologies that are just coming up that the younger people are starting to use, for instance, like in the area of insurance and healthcare, but that may not be as mainstream yet, but that you see peeking their heads, so to speak, that you see coming out in the next couple of years?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think insurance would be a great example. We have, you know, in the last several months, we've had two companies go public in parts of the insurance market that most people probably never heard of. So, the title insurance industry, a company called Doma, which used to be in those days Title, which is really trying to rethink title insurance and has created a multi-billion-dollar business here in about five years in a market that I would venture a guess isn't home to many multi-billion-dollar businesses. And then Hippo, which has probably has a fraction of the homeowners insurance policies in this country, but probably can demands a premium of the equity valuations in that industry. And these are two, I think, relatively sleepy industries where incumbents were taking advantage of regulatory capture and pretty standardized product that was, was mostly sold through commissions and kickbacks and created a product that's actually better and actually does the same thing, which is cheaper than what the existing incumbents provide. And consumers are rewarding it by purchasing it and investors are rewarding it by giving it a premium valuation. I think on the consumer side, there's really no shortage of new products. I mean, the most well-known is probably Chime, which I think at this point probably has about the fifth most customers of any financial service company in the country right now. And most of them are low- and middle-income consumers who were not only underserved by incumbents, but were actively discouraged from banking with them. And you now have a company that's come in there and, and really just found a, a way of creating a transparent product for them that they love and are using and telling their friends about. And again, investors are rewarding that. And when you have these companies that you are able to raise billions of dollars at a time, I do think incumbents should be aware of that. There are very few banks in this country that are capable of raising that kind of money. And so when you have a series of startups kind of across the board coming at various angles, it's probably
0: time to start paying attention. I hadn't followed the Chime story, for instance. Is that an online banking company? I mean, what's Chime doing?
1: Yeah, so Chime is essentially, a, it's a debit card, it's just like a checking account. And you sign up online, they send you a debit card, just like you might get from Wells Fargo or JP Morgan. It has very few fees, really doesn't have any really low risk of getting an overdraft, which is a big deal for many consumers. It's just a simple, simple checking account, really. You know, there's a lot more to the product. But I think at the core, it's just a really easy to understand, you know, simple product that gives you what you're looking for without really having to worry about some sort of hidden fee or something else in a you know, background that might come in to get you, bite you.
0: So using that as an example, like, I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with the company Green Dot, mm-hmm. yeah. which was also, when people were buying debit cards, but they were buying them at convenience stores or gas stations or otherwise, and then they could reload them. In an economy where a lot of people don't have access to traditional banking arrangements and, for instance, are unable to get a credit card, Green Dot was solving that particular challenge. Does Chime and this online banking, is this the next evolution of the Green Dots of the world, essentially?
1: I think so. You know, Green Dot has increasingly shifted to become a payments platform that powers a lot of other players. So Green Dot could be powering Chime and I think this is kind of how I think about how these fields evolve is oftentimes you'll have something. So Green Dot, you grip point out, it's been, been around for, I think, about 15 years now. One of the first to really think about how to create a processor for prepaid cards. Before that, these were not particularly common, and they were not particularly efficient. And so the first iterations of Green Dot's products was you know powering a bunch of different prepaid cards that could have hung on local Walmart or Target shelf. As you've seen this shift away from buying those products at your local Walmart or Target to seeing it on the internet and downloading it on your phone, Green Dot has also shifted its business to enable that infrastructure to happen. This isn't what Chime is doing is to a degree derivative of the Green Dot business model. And you know Green Dot has a bank now. And so they think about banking, I think, very differently than a conventional bank. They really think about it as banking many you know, fintech companies.
0: Not to sound like a dinosaur, but in the old days where you'd go and you'd get a credit card or a debit card and it would physically sit in your wallet, and then obviously the next generation is you make a copy of it and you put it on your iPhone, and then you're at the market and you want to pay with your credit card, you can do it. It sounds like what you're saying is we've now gone where you don't need a physical card. You download the card into your wallet already. It's linked to an account that you've set up. You never had to even go into the bank to open up the account. You've got essentially a checking account online. You've got a debit card on your phone that you downloaded from the internet. You didn't have to physically buy anywhere. And that is, for us people that are learning about this, that's the next generation of essentially your ability to buy things in a supermarket or online or otherwise. And it's all being done electronically through the internet.
1: That's all true, but they also send you a physical card too. So you would still get a physical Chime card or, you know, we're investors in a number of these companies a company called Daylight, which is focused on you know, LGBTQ populations or investors can be called Point, which is a debit card that's targeting younger Gen Z consumers who you know, are looking for points programs. We're invested in a small company called Avella, which is focused on couples. And so what you're really going towards, it's a much more curated universe of fintech where you can select a product that's right for you. Chime might not be the right debit card for you, but you know Wells Fargo might not also be the right debit card for you. You might have a Wells Fargo card because there happened to be a Wells Fargo branch close to where you lived, and that was the only way to get into the banking system was to go down this branch and go through all the rigmarole and filling out paperwork and whatever else. Well, now you can look on the internet and say, okay, what's the right product for me? And you can purchase that product, and you know what you're getting, and it's going to get sent to you, and, and it should work. It's really not dissimilar to, you know, I think of the impact streaming services are having on entertainment, cable, movie production industry. You had an ecosystem before this where I owned all the distribution in the country. And so you watched what I showed you. And if you didn't like it, you probably would start to like it because you didn't have a lot of other options. What you have now is, well, no, actually, I'm not interested in that at all. I only want to watch horror movies all the time. And there's a streaming service that will give that to you. And the entertainment industry has then evolved to create you know, more horror movies and the talent in that industry is being rewarded for it. And the loser are the incumbents who own the pipes and who own these networks and are increasingly running out of customers. And I don't think the threat, I think the threat from fintech is more existential to the incumbents than that, that what you have happening in streaming in that part of the market.
0: In the same way that theoretically, at least, before Amazon took over the world in terms of building warehouses and getting you with Prime locked in and your ability to get products the same day or the next day, which in a sense is a barrier to entry because it would cost billions, if not trillions, of dollars to catch up to Amazon. In the fintech space, it sounds like there's room for these smaller companies to be very disruptive. Is that because the regulations have become easier to navigate? I'm assuming at some point there'll be consolidation. But at least right now, what do you think is creating this opportunity for these small companies to come in and be so disruptive?
1: That's a great question. I think there's threefold. One, the market changed. And if you look at when financial services companies are created throughout history, it's when the market changes. Wells Fargo and American Express are legacies of the American expansion to the West. Bank of America is a legacy of an increasingly diverse population moving to the United States. We'll start out as Bank of Italy. Every great financial institution, you go to their headquarters, will tell you some story about how they were solving a problem for people who were not well served. What's happened in the last 10 years is, and if the financial crisis was a big spark that really accelerated this, and I think we'll look back and unfortunately, I think COVID has also had an equal impact for very different reasons. People are like, yeah, I don't really need to go to the bank anymore. And actually like these products that are super confusing and hard to understand, and I don't, even, I don't even access half of them. Why do I wanna deal with that when I can just get what I want on the internet, just directly and get it instantly fulfilled to me. And I don't have to worry about it. That's happening broadly. And I, I think every player, whether you're the most cutting edge crypto company to the most dinosaur financial institution, they're operating in that market. What's unique about the United States is just it's vast. I mean the scale of the u.s economy is hard to fathom but this is just an incredibly rich giant country and so you have the ability here to go pick off would seemingly be really narrow demographic groups and they have tens of millions of people in them and they're all pretty pretty wealthy compared to like global population it makes for a really right market for new entrants to come in and then one of the legacies of the financial crisis is that it's turned the market upside down. So a lot of smaller banks have have some advantages over bigger banks, probably not worth getting into the details of, but that make it easier for them to compete with the larger financial institutions. And many fintechs are able to take advantage of some of that framework. And then, you know, the largest banks we have in this country are really no longer able or willing to continue to kind of innovate to serve more customers just because they are so big. And so, you know, their shareholders are pushing them to grow into invest, or they were until very recently when FinTech kind of came on the market, but they were pushing them to grow into investment banking and global banking and whatever high thing that had higher margins. You know, it is a classic innovator's dilemma where the biggest players are looking for, you know, bigger and bigger chunks of revenue even if they know the margins are going to get smaller and smaller and smaller and they're unable to invest in what are currently seemingly small markets but have pretty significant margins. And so what you'd expect is as these startups come along and take advantage of quote small markets with high margins. They tend to grow quite fast and pre-for-long can present a pretty significant threat. And I think that's what's happening now. I mean, it's really a classic innovators dilemma dynamic. I will say that the regulatory market has not become easier for fintechs. And so a lot of what we do here at the Financial Venture Studio is really meet these founders at a very early stage and then try to help them connect to that market. This is the ecosystem. And so when we think about what it takes to build these fintech companies, you have to have relationships with regulators and policymakers. You have to have relationships with these bigger incumbents who you're competing with on one hand, but you often need to work with on the other. You need people to tell your story to the media and digital influencers. And then these businesses require a lot of capital. And so a lot of what we try to do is help our founders raise the money they need to be successful and take advantage of these new relationships.
0: One of the things I'm hearing is that there is a lot of liquidity out there. And as you just pointed out, when you're starting a widget company, there are certain issues you're going to have to deal with. But when you're starting a fintech company, there are a lot of strategic issues that you're going to have to wrestle with, whether or not, as you said, it's these regulators that you have to deal with and navigate but also these large companies that they need to partner with and otherwise. It sounds like one of the things you're doing to differentiate yourself from your competitors is in a world where there's a lot of capital, you're smart money. You're giving people money, but you're also mentoring them and helping open doors and get them to a place so that they can actually be effective in what they're trying to do. That's exactly what we are trying to do. And that makes sense to me because in terms of where the puck is going, we believe that there is a bubble right now. We call the everything bubble because the essentially corollary to printing all this money and avoiding the downturn of 2008 and 2009 was quote quantitative easing. And so we've created trillions of dollars that have flowed out there. And when we handed them out out of airplanes, they had to go somewhere. And they've gone into technology more than anything, and the VCs and the non-banks and the banks. And so there's this unbelievable liquidity out there in a sense, chasing too few deals. And one of the things smart guys like you are doing is you're saying, look, yes, you may be able to get money here, but if you can't put it to work and be effective, you're not going to win the game. It seems like you're at that cross-section where you're taking advantage of the fact that there's liquidity out there, but you're also being smart in helping them guide themselves so that, again, they can actually execute their plan.
1: Yeah, I think that that's totally right. You know, There's certainly a lot of money in the space. But that money requires, you know, to take advantage of it, you need to have a plan. And so what we really are trying to do is help our founders develop that plan. And so we're often, you know, we're often in first money into companies, we'll invest pre-incorporation, or we'll commit to investing pre-incorporation, and we'll be there kind of right on day one. And a lot we're trying to do is quickly help our founders connect to that ecosystem. And I think one thing about FinTech that is different than some of these other areas where you've seen a lot of disruption, it is extremely heavily regulated. The reach of those regulators is expansive, their time horizons are long, and the tools in their toolbox are extreme. They can very easily put you out of business or send you to jail. And so it's really important that these businesses don't make unforced errors early on. And beyond that, really take advantage of the fact that you know, among incumbents, there's a lot of energy and excitement for new innovation. And it's regulators. We bring our you know, seed stage businesses to meet regulators, well, one of 100 people in the room, because they're excited to see what's next. There are very few people in this country who think our financial services system works well. And so when you're showing up and saying, hey, I can make this part of it better, people are tend to be pretty supportive. And so what we want to do is help our founders take advantage of that. You know, because I think we, we do a good job on that, you know, we tend to have a lot of success and being lucky to work with really talented founders who've gone on to build some really significant businesses in very short order. We enjoy really good relationships with a lot of the much larger follow-on investors and multi-stage global venture funds that we need to back our companies. And then with the regulatory and policymaking community, we're able to help introduce them and kind of explain what's happening in, I think, a constructive way. And we see that as really critical to the success of the space.
0: When you're looking at these small companies that are starting out and you want to get in there, as you said, even pre-incorporation, are you geographically bound or are you investing all over the country?
1: We'll invest all over the country. I mean, especially now, we've seen a real dispersion of founders across the United States since the pandemic started. We certainly don't see the locations as a hindrance in any way.
0: Without giving any uh, proprietary information out, we're talking about things like these debit cards and we're talking about insurance and title insurance and so forth. Are there new things that you think are coming, whether or not they're new lending programs or new financial management programs or new ideas that you expect to see in the next few years?
1: Totally. Well, so we're going to start to see fintech companies coming after core functionalities of the traditional incumbents. By that, getting involved in algorithmic decision-making, moving increasingly into higher value transactions, so you know, wealth management, dare I say, you know, commercial investment banking. As the universe of what's possible in fintech starts to expand, and the benefits of having really strong technology become even more pronounced so one example, like a you know, company, I think we were, we were up, we were, we were the first investors in this a company called Fair Play. And what they do is eliminate bias and algorithmic decisions. So if you're lending or offering insurance product, or even marketing a insurance product, a lending product, you need to follow a whole host of laws in this country around fair credit and anti-discrimination and on and on and kind of under the bucket of kind of fairness. And so what happens now, you know, many of these algorithms that lenders use to make these decisions are biased, is the plan, you go and write a report about how your decision making is biased, you then say, I can't fix it, it's too complicated. And then you identify something else you could do that's completely unrelated, that would theoretically make up for the bias you have in your core business. And what Fairplay does is looks at the algorithm that you have and says, actually, just change this thing and it wouldn't be biased anymore. And then also while you're at it, you discriminate against all these people that you should have lent to because they were credit worthy borrowers or you charge them too much, you should charge them less and it allows you to retarget those people. That's a product. I mean, I think all of us agree that the fact that our financial services ecosystem is biased and unfair is a bad thing. And this is a software that's getting to the core of the problem. We're no longer just papering over some issue. We're actually solving the problem. I think there's a lot of parts of the financial services ecosystem where we could solve the problem. I think that could open up a lot of new innovation.
0: In terms of people that are traditional business people and they have a relationship with their neighborhood banker and they want to take out a loan or get a mortgage for their house or they want to take a loan out for their business, is lending online in FinTech the wave of the future and is it already hugely here and going to be taking more and more money away from the Wells's and the B of A's of the world or do you not see that being a big part of it?
1: It's been here for years. I mean, you go to your local community bank and you want to take a loan for a couple million dollars, odds are that they're going to go syndicate that loan with other banks in the area, maybe banks all over the country. So banks have been doing this for decades. I mean, this is a pretty well understood part of the banking ecosystem. What's happening now is you're having fintech companies come in and do that too. And they're no longer reliant on knowing you from the local rotary club. It works in areas where you have relatively standardized products or products that are not well served by the existing incumbents. And so good example of that would be the PPP loan program that they rolled out last year. Obviously, there were some flaws in areas that that could have been improved. But if you look at the actual distribution of loans, a significant percentage, if not the majority, were actually distributed by fintech companies that were not in the business before, as was nobody.
0: I remember reading about a few fintech companies. That literally, when the PPP money came out, they pivoted and they became portals to then broker those loans to the traditional banks and literally, in a year, made over a billion dollars because they were able to be fast adapters. They moved quickly. Yes. But that was specific to PPP. I recently heard you can't make this up, but I heard that a defense company that was small got this huge amount of loans, several because there's a, a government program that was designed so that defense contractors couldn't go out of business. Well, one, you have to know about those programs, but number two, are they FinTech products now that are available? Yeah, I'm assuming there are a lot of these programs out there that our listeners may not even know were available. Mm-hmm.
1: You're 100% right. We, we have a portfolio company called Farmraise. You know, very early. And what the two founders are trying to do is help you know, medium-sized farmers access USDA programs, their grant programs. I mean, it's essentially free money, but there's a million hoops you have to jump through to get it. So, of course, no one takes advantage of it. Agricultural lending is one area where there's a lot of money to be made in making these loans, but they take a lot of specialized knowledge. And so, what the team at Farmers is doing is, you know, hey, we can really understand this market. We can help these farmers access better financial products, improve the financial health of that family farm, and also make money by putting them together with a better financial package. And so that's a great example of where in most cases in fintech, you're seeing incumbents go after what seem like small or abandoned markets and very quickly realize that they're quite large. The best example of this is Stripe helping people who have an online presence take credit cards. I think incumbents thought that that was like, well, whatever, PayPal solved it, not that big of a deal. Actually, they hadn't come close to solving it. And it was a huge deal. And Stripe is now you know, a $100 billion plus company. People simplify that story to eight lines of code. There's obviously a lot more than that to it. But that's a lot of why you end up oftentimes having this kind of small wedge. And that wedge can be quite a bit larger than even the most optimistic can imagine.
0: You talked about title insurance. We've talked about these new platforms for PPP money or otherwise. A person goes out and they want to buy a house, or they go in and they want to buy a duplex, or they want to buy an apartment building. Essentially, they typically would have a broker show them the property, and then the broker may have them introduced to a mortgage broker. and Then the escrow company introduces you to the title company, and everybody's scratching each other's back. If I'm a 30-year-old that's going out to buy my first investment property or my first house, how is the world look differently to that person? Is it because they're starting on Zillow to find the house that they're using a bot instead of a broker? How is fintech, for instance, going to take over or change that environment? Or is it going to change the habits of young people that are going out now and buying their first-time house, for instance?
1: I mean, the answer is absolutely you know, let's take this real estate example. There are platforms. So let's say you want to buy a fractional share of a home. You could use Roofstock right now and probably be done with it in a few hours. And you don't have to worry about anything. You're just going to get a piece of the action on that home you bought. Or you want to buy the whole thing yourself. There are now platforms cropping up that will actually go out and do all this work for you, identify the right city to be in, where the demographic trends, where the economic trends are really strong, and actually take you through the process of just purchasing it and financing the product for you helping you with tax reporting. There are companies like Nest Egg, which is one of our portfolio companies that you could then put your property on and they'll take care of all the management and servicing of it, you know, from mowing the lawn to collecting rent to solving kind of the emergencies that come up as a small landlord. I mean, there are already startups doing this right now. Some of them are quite large and that would be an app. On the purchasing your own home, you know, that's interesting. That's one area that we've seen some innovation around and tended to be on kind of helping people qualify for mortgages or kind of work their way into a first-time home. So, you know, there's a company called Divi Homes, which does this and will essentially, you know, buy the house and rent it back to you as you slowly start building up equity and then eventually transfer it over to you. There's more options there. The mortgage market in this country has kind of one buyer, that's the U.S. government. And so it tends to lead to some interesting innovations on the front end. It has not led to quite as many as one would think. There are some big examples of businesses there that are just making that process easier. So Rocket Mortgage, which is a public company, worth $20 or $30 billion at this point, has quickly became the largest originator of mortgages in the country over the last decade. Blend Labs, again, public company helping the Wells Fargo's and the JP Morgan's Chase of the world actually process these mortgages faster and use technology to do their own processes. So you probably aren't seeing as much on the front end consumer side yet, but I would suspect as we get, hopefully get to a more normal credit market in the mortgage space, whenever that happens, that you probably see more of it.
0: So we've seen going back to before the housing crisis, you know, we saw all these syndications of Different types of products. And we had contingent valuation rights and we had all sorts of different ways to syndicate different products. When you talk about people being able to buy fractional interests in houses, we always had timeshares where you could go out and buy a week in Maui. But what I think you're saying is just like I want to buy a share of Tesla, I can go buy a share of Tesla. If I want to play the real estate game and I think homes are going up in price or otherwise, instead of having to go out and buy that same home, I can go out and invest, it sounds like through some of these new fintech products, a fractional interest in a house that a company has put together and bought a portfolio, and then they're letting me buy that. And assuming I qualify as an accredited investor or there's an exemption, I'm able to buy into this new product that was otherwise not available to me. Is that correct? That's totally right. Yep. Okay. We've seen inflation in house prices. We've seen cap rates at crazy levels. And you heard me say we're in this everything bubble. From a supply and demand perspective, at the end of the day, there was a limited supply of houses. There was a certain number of people buying it. But when you introduce new methods of investing in houses by fractional interest, is that a material enough number of people and enough money chasing it that it's having an effect on housing prices? No. Okay. I
1: don't think so. I think your everything bubble is probably flowing through Blackstone. Uh, before having a bigger impact there than it is, in, you know, with the, you know, the individual small investor,
0: right? I do think in the stock market when we look at these historical PE ratios, if a stock's trading at a share, Mm -hmm. and it's got huge volume, it's one thing. But if it's a thinly traded stock, it doesn't take that much incremental money to move that stock up. I think when you take PPP money and you send everybody $1,500 checks and you give them Robinhood accounts, to say that it's not had an effect on stock prices or Bitcoin, I think is naive. I'm wondering in the real estate space... Where you've sent all this money out to people, people have all this disposable income. I mean, again, I haven't followed this. Like, I'm not aware of how many people are actually buying fractional interest in houses right now. Yeah. But is it a material amount of money going into that right now? Not compared to the broader real estate
1: market. I mean, I, again, this is one of those things where the scale of these markets is kind of mind boggling. You know, I mean, it's like the average mortgage backed security is like $30 billion. They're huge. I would think that the entire universe of fintech enabled real estate is probably on the order of magnitude what like a Blackstone's doing daily. I mean, if you're looking at where the inflation would come in real estate, it's gonna be big PE funds that are in there with these, you know, multi-billion dollar strategies to just go buy everything in an area that comes up to market, clean it up, and put it on front right on the rental side. I mean, that trade's been going now for I do people who know that better than I do, but it seems like pretty much started surely after the financial crisis and has kind of led up unabated as long as interest rates are low. Right. I think for many smaller investors, we're probably doing is opening up the aperture a bit to people who can do it. You know, real estate is an asset class that a lot of people kind of intuitively understand understand. It's not you know, the stock market. You know, Robin has done a lot to raising awareness of the stock market. I'm not sure they've done a lot to educate people about the stock market, but they certainly have raised awareness of it. Right. I think you know, even if you're buying a fractional home, I mean, we're still talking about something in the order of thousands of dollars or maybe tens of thousands of dollar investment. Sure. And I think you have a lot more people who maybe they might've been, let's say the average second home buyer was 55 years old, 20 years ago. You know, now these are platforms are allowing somebody who might be in their early 40s and have a little bit of extra disposable income looking for some other passive income sources to do it. I think we're still pretty far away from this having a material impact in any kind of of real estate market.
0: That makes sense. In terms of changes that you see happening, or if I'm a small company and I haven't raised a billion dollars and you're helping them get through the regulatory framework and you're helping them figure this out. Are there tricks that you can help these small companies with in terms of getting noticed out there? Because the acquisition cost of customers is expensive. You know, you can be the best kept secret in the world until you get out there. So any tricks or do you help companies with their social media presence to get out there so people find out about them?
1: Yeah, we have a pretty bespoke approach. We'll make about 10 to 15 investments a year. And for every company we're investing in, we make a plan that's specific to that company of how they can be helpful. And then there's a number of touch points that we'll have over the course of, you know, the first six to nine months after we invest to try to bring them together with some of these shared groups. So we'll have a meeting where we bring together regulators. We'll have a meeting where we bring together investors. We'll have a meeting where we bring together media and digital influencers. And we'll use that as a way of having just a lot of touch points and helping raise awareness to the companies. But from a day to day every company is different. Some companies, they have a great product, and, and maybe they need to the help kind of raising awareness of it. And that's an easier problem to solve. More frequently, you know, these companies, they have something they're working on, and we're helping them you know, raise additional capital, or they need to figure out a bank partnership so that they can you know, use another bank for payments capability. And so you're walking them through a process, and we're, we're talking to both sides and, and trying to help shepherd along the process. Most of the work we're doing is much more blocking and tackling than kind of just general maxims for success. By and large, you know, if you're a founder, you, know, you should be getting the product out to people. I would never encourage someone to be a stealth startup and think that's a ridiculous concept in fintech. You're stealth until you have like a million users or millions. And what you give up by hiding from customers and investors and potential partners is information about whether the product has any utility it's far more likely. And I'll tell you the best investments we've ever made have been companies that started growing before the founder had any idea why. They just took off. And that means that you have a product that's in demand. And when that's happening, everything else you can solve. That's kind of the ideal situation is you figure out product market fit, you figure out some inkling of it, and then you can find people who can help you with the rest. That'd be my generic advice if I could give some of you if you're a founder, so you really do your best to try to figure that out. and Everything else tends to follow if that happens, but it's pretty
0: rare. It's interesting because one of the trends we're looking at is in the space of augmented reality and virtual reality. We spoke to Verizon about 5G technology a while ago, but with the Zoom revolution because of COVID, people are talking about, if we don't go back to the office in the same traditional way we did, people are going to be still looking for connection in communities. And there's going to be these virtual worlds or augmented reality worlds where people are going to be able to interact. And we saw that in the game space where people were playing games all over the world and they're buying skins and they're trading skins and stuff. As people are talking about virtual goods and the ability to buy things in these virtual reality markets, I would think from a marketplace perspective, fintech's going to have a role to play there because if I'm in there with my friends and I'm interacting or I'm in this virtual world, if I can go to a virtual bank or do a virtual financial transaction and it's all connected together, I could see that as a huge opportunity for people.
1: I think you're right. And I think going to your earlier point around crypto, I think that that's where there's been a tremendous amount of innovation in kind of the crypto space just in the last couple of months. I mean, you've seen the growth of DAOs and NFTs and some of these discord communities that are cropping up around them are kind of proto versions of what you're describing and are really for the first time. You do have commerce occurring that's similar to that. It's not just like I'm buying a virtual good from a company, which a lot of was happening before. Yeah. You're now buying it from somebody else who might be creating it because of demand within a community. And, and that I think is a very different dynamic. And it's one we're monitoring really, really closely because I think that that probably has the potential to have some fundamental impact on some payments more broadly.
0: Right. Well, no, this is fantastic. And I think it, for those people that are trying to navigate these challenging waters, especially in an area that's highly regulated, which is very intimidating to people. What it sounds like is you're taking these complex challenges for these entrepreneurs and you're saying, look, you've got the technology, you've got this idea, but we're going to get this back end cleaned up for you and it's not gonna be as stressful as you think it is, but we're giving you a place to call so that you can help them through this. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, we're always looking for new startups. And so to the extent that your listeners are working on something in FinTech or they know somebody who is, they encourage them to reach out to us. We actually will do an application for our investment program every about six months or so. So you can always follow us on Twitter, check out our website, finventurestudio.com or just reach out directly to one of us. We're always looking to meet new startups, really no stages too early.
0: I think that's fantastic. It's certainly an area that people are gonna need to take advantage of. And so I have thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, thank you.
1: Me too, Jim, thanks for having me on.
0: The world is moving so quickly right now and guys like you who are keeping up on these trends and the state of the art stuff, it's very inspiring. So thank you.